G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants and doesn't paywall you the good stuff. We are continuing on in our journey through the primeval history, still in Genesis 4, and deep in the story of Cain and Abel's. You can't have one without the other. Well, actually, I guess you can and can. That's part of the story. Yeah, Cain sort of made sure of that, didn't he? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, that's right, Chris. Lots of other podcasts out there will tell you so much for free, and then if you want the good stuff, you've got to cough up for it, but not on this show. No way. I can't imagine people paying for the stuff that comes out of my mouth anyway. At the end of the day, I just want this material to get out there because I'm quite sure that if I wrote a book and called it some honest kind of title like, hey, everybody, I'm not a professional scholar, but this is how I reckon you need to understand the primeval history and its ancient Near Eastern context, it's probably not going to do really well. You can get away with that kind of stuff when you're writing about giants because the general consensus is that lots of people are interested in giants and they don't really care if you have any credentials. But then I can't cram all this stuff into a book about giants either. When I tried that, that was Chapter 5 of the book. So uh, apologies if that did you head in. But anyway, that's why this podcast exists and that's why it's available absolutely for free in its entirety. If you want to give me some money, you can buy a copy of my book. And uh, if you already have a copy of my book and you still want to give me some money, then... Buy a copy of my book for somebody else. I don't care who you buy it for. Buy one for a friend. Buy one for an enemy. Anyway, we need to get on with the study. Uh, We have witnessed Cain's failed attempt at obtaining a good harvest season through presenting offerings to God. And we watched as he struggled to come to terms with the reality that he was going to have to persevere in order to succeed. Cain decided instead to seek a path that seemed easier to him, which was to forsake his allegiance to Yahweh in favour of a lesser God. The murder of Abel is portrayed by this author as a ritual sacrifice or a statement of intent ratified in blood, which was designed to guarantee success, prosperity and fertility for Cain in his efforts to bring forth the produce of the ground. But what Cain didn't count on was that the ground would betray him. That's a, uh, an odd uh, turn of phrase there, Tim. What do you mean by that exactly? Well, we're going to find out as we get into our scripture reading for today, which comes from Genesis and verses 10 to 12. Here it is. And the Lord said, What have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. That's a pretty dark text for our reading this time. It kind of reminds me of, of Genesis 3, where God asks that rhetorical question to the woman and says, what is this you have done? Yeah, God knows exactly what Cain's done, doesn't he? And again, we're reminded of the high degree of continuity between chapters 3 and 4. And this makes me wonder, where is the father of the boys? He's become absent from the story once again, just like he was when Eve met the servant. Yet again, the man has failed in his obligation toward his family. And this is setting us up for another major biblical theme that pointed toward the judgment of God at the exile. What we're seeing here is the lack of guidance from a father to a son, specifically with regard to cultic matters. Failure to restrain a son from his wickedness in a religious setting in Genesis 4 becomes a theme in the Deuteronomistic history. We see it in the sons of Eli. We see it in Absalom, the son of David. Saul got it wrong the other way around by opposing Jonathan and David, who were doing the right thing. Genesis 4 is teaching us, even in the things left unsaid, 
but only if we have the benefit of hindsight. This is another reason why I believe the primeval history only makes sense in the context of the exile and not earlier. The point is we're all guilty of neglecting to bring our children up in the full knowledge of the Lord and his ways. But that's just a little aside there. Let's go back to the text. Obviously, the question, what have you done, is rhetorical. God knows, and he just wants Cain to think about it. That's the easy part to get in this text. But what does it mean when God says that the voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground? Well, yeah, obviously, you can't take that literally, uh, can you? Blood crying out. Uh, sounds like a poetic kind of way to say that God knows what Cain has done. Yeah, well, I can't argue with that, Chris. I reckon that's exactly right. But I also think there's a bit more going on. We haven't really talked about blood in the context of ancient Near Eastern thought so far on the podcast, but it's about time we had that discussion. In our modern Western culture, we tend to see blood as being connected with death because bloodshed results in death. But for ancient people, they saw the other side of the coin. Because the mindset of ancient people was functionally oriented, they looked at blood from the perspective of what it is good for, and that is for life. You need blood to live. Blood is essential to life and therefore it represents life. This is why in the book of Leviticus you find the priests instructed to sprinkle blood on things in order to cleanse them ritually, to make those things fit for the presence of God who is the author of life. Blood was used to counteract or nullify the effects of chaos, decay and death. We talked about the power of blood in ritual before when we spoke about the sacrifice of Abel at the hands of Cain. Cain's intent was to bring life-giving rain upon the earth to guarantee a good harvest, and in order to demonstrate the determination behind that intent, he was forced to pay a very high price. It cost the blood of his brother and ultimately Abel's death. We talked about the kind of God that would demand a sacrifice like that, which we see illustrated throughout the Old Testament. God of fertility, a storm god, was later associated with the title Satan. Some of our long-term listeners may remember an episode we did back in Season 2 of the podcast where I talked about a bizarre internet phenomenon known as the Blood Over Intent Ritual, which swept across YouTube for some time and gathered thousands of followers. Do you remember that one, Chris? I, I do. It must be one of the weirdest episodes we've done so far, um, and that was a pretty disturbing thing to learn about, I must say. Mm, yeah, so as I did some digging into that, I was able to show connections to a satanic cult that was using its online presence as a front for recruitment. Members talked about manifesting heavenly realities by means of using bloodshed to show their allegiance and devotion and how deliberately intentional they were about achieving their desired result. And what we've seen here in the story of Cain and Abel is the truth that this kind of blood ritual has existed for many thousands of years. People messing around with this kind of stuff on the internet have got no idea what they're getting into. So blood, as a means of symbolising life and life-giving power, is incredibly powerful, not because of some kind of inherent energy or magic or something, because the powers in heavenly places, whether good or evil, understand the meaning and the intent, and they are prepared to respond to it. Well, I guess that makes sense, but I'm not sure what to do with the idea of blood having a sound or voice, like it says in uh, English translations. So what's, what's that all about? Well, that's a great question. In Hebrew idiom, it's quite common to have a sound referred to as a voice. That in itself is not enough to guarantee that the author is making some kind of a personification or anthropomorphism in the text. But when we see this phenomenon, we should definitely keep our eyes open for that kind of thing. So when the biblical authors talk about Abel's blood crying out or speaking, are they talking about Abel like he's still alive? 
Well, I think that the author of Hebrews definitely had that in mind. But here in Genesis, I don't think that's explicitly the case. Maybe it's just hinting at that hope of an afterlife for the righteous. But what I think is really going on here is connected to what we've been saying since that episode in season two that I was just talking about. When we introduce the concept of the ground as the world of humanity or civilization. We've actually talked about it quite a lot since then. But for the benefit of those who came in late, it would be worth checking out those earlier episodes. Basically, the premise is that when this author talks about vast multitudes, he does so by referring to dust. And so the dust is representative of large populations of people. Dust of the ground is a phrase referring to the indistinct nature of the dust as compared to every other speck of dust on the surface of the ground. Ground is the wider culture or civilization. This is why the man is referred to as Ha-Adam, which reflects the ground itself, or Adamah. He is an ordinary guy, no different to anybody else. I want to talk very briefly about something that we haven't yet touched on with regard to the first man, the one that the Bible calls Ha-Adam. We've already mentioned the connection with the ground in that the soil is referred to as Adamah. But there is another play on words happening here, which is too important to miss. The Hebrew word for blood is Dam. That same word is used to describe the color of blood, which is is of course red. This has led some commentators to define Ha-Adam as the red dirt man. They see it as a reference to the complexion of the skin or something like that. I think that fails to take in the connection with blood, reducing it to a skin color that really wouldn't apply to ancient men in the Middle East in the first place doesn't make much sense to me. But when we consider blood and its connection to life and vitality and purity, we see that it is a very special ingredient that forms part of humanity as we were intended to be. We're not told that the man was made out of blood or out of some mixture that included blood, unlike some other ancient Near Eastern cultures, such as the Babylonians, who believe that mankind was fashioned out of clay made with the blood of a god that was slaughtered, specifically an evil god known for causing trouble on a cosmic scale. His name was Kingu. You might remember that name if you've watched the movie Eternals. Oh, don't remind me. Instead, the biblical narrative alludes to a special kind of life bestowed upon humankind, which is why none of the animals, although they are, of course, red-blooded, are described in terms that reflect their red-blooded nature. What this does for us is it paints a picture that the purity, innocence, and vitality represented by blood, the holiness represented by blood, are bestowed upon mankind, not by virtue of physical construction, but by the pronouncement of the identity of mankind. When God calls us Adam, he is imparting that status in terms of all those attributes that I just mentioned by sovereign decree. And that becomes ours either to maintain or to lose. So that's got some fascinating implications when we consider the work of Jesus Christ and what it means for his blood to have been shed for our sake. In Genesis 1, we had the pronouncement of God, the word that he spoke when he called us Adam which effectively made atonement for us by connecting blood with our identity as his representatives. And then you have the shed blood of Jesus Christ making atonement for us once and for all after we had desecrated ourselves as a species through sin. Both times it was the word of God that purified us, making us holy in the sight of God. And both times that word found its expression in blood. You know, I shouldn't be surprised really, but it <laughs> kind of blows me away just how consistent the Bible is. All the way through, beginning to end, I never thought we would have been talking about atonement in Genesis 1. Yeah, that's pretty crazy, isn't it? Applying that to our situation here in Genesis 4, 
we find that the murder of Abel was intended to bring prosperity to the people that Cain ruled over. Cain is the worker of the ground who is supposed to serve and keep the ground, but instead he takes from the ground by force to make his living. Ground is the people, the people are the ground. Cain is the king, and he is responsible for the fertility of the land. The ritual sacrifice of Abel was supposed to bring rain and restore fertility and life to the land. Instead, we find that the ground testifies against Cain on account of the shedding of innocent blood. The people are crying out to God because the blood of Abel has come upon them, and they are feeling the weight of that guilt. Thus, Abel's blood has been given a voice in its transference to the ground, to the people. And the voice of Cain's brother's blood does not come before the God that Cain sacrificed him to. No, it comes before Yahweh. And this should not be a surprise to us, because we should know from the book of Revelation that the martyrs continually cry out to God for justice. God always hears the cry of the righteous. So God is telling Cain that the testimony of Abel and the cry of the oppressed come before him. And Cain had the audacity to challenge God and say, Am I my brother's keeper? As if he didn't know. As if God didn't know what he'd done. God is saying to Cain, The cry of the righteous and the oppressed comes to me. I know what you did. I know what you did last summer or last dry season or whatever it was. And we see this reflected in the New Testament and in particular the book of Revelation, which talks about the blood of the martyrs and the prayer of the saints, which come before God continually. So God continues and says to Cain, and now you are cursed from the ground. That's another weird expression there. How can you be cursed from the ground? Mm, well, you remember what we were just saying about how the ground, the Adama, is representative of human society. This basically amounts to exile. Cain is going to be sent away from the people that he had been ruling over. Yeah, okay, that's, that seems fairly straightforward from reading the text as we go on a bit further. Does that mean that uh, the ground opening its mouth to receive Abel's blood is talking about the people of that civilization? Yeah, that's right. We need to keep in mind that a king is supposed to look after the needs of his people and they've had their mouths open as if they were begging for food. But instead of food, what they got was a share in the responsibility for the shedding of Abel's blood. They needed what Abel's blood represented, and they were prepared to take it from the hand of Cain. But we have no indication in the text that the drought was broken in the land. There's nothing here to tell us that the sacrifice yielded a good result for Cain and his people. And that may be why the people turned against Cain and cried out to Yahweh after being made accountable for the blood of Abel. Getting back to the text, the next thing that God says to Cain is, when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. I think this is another really clear indication that the people have turned against Cain and will not be ruled by him, which is why he has to go. If he's not going to serve them, then they will not yield to him the power that he craves. But I think power is probably a better translation of that term rather than strength. We have other words for strength, but this one is much more closely aligned to what we would define as power. In the context of kingship, you can see that it makes a lot more sense as well. Cain is not looking for muscle from the people. He wants power, but the power of the people is not your own power. And once it's turned against you, you find yourself powerless against them. Cain has to go. God tells Cain that he must become a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And here the text actually does give us the earth rather than the ground. The term is Eretz, which means land. Gotta be careful with some of these translations to get a bit loose with the terminology. These are technical terms. At no point are we talking about a planet or a globe. But you will find Earth sometimes translating the land and sometimes the ground. 
As a general rule, when you see the word earth, you should be thinking land, but sometimes that will obscure the use of ground, which, as I've already explained ad nauseum, has particular symbolic meaning that you don't want to lose. So that puts Cain in the position of being away from civilization, wandering the land like someone who is running from justice. In Old Testament law, you have a provision made for people who accidentally kill somebody, and there are cities of refuge where you can go to escape from the vengeance of grieving family members. Now, Cain is definitely guilty of intentional bloodshed, so there isn't any legitimate recourse for him except to run away and hope that vengeance does not catch up with him. There is no such thing as a city of refuge, whether we are talking chronologically because that law had not yet been given, or even in the case where such a law existed, it wouldn't apply to someone guilty of intentional murder. All right, well, before I kill my audience with boredom, I think we'll put a bookmark in it and return to Genesis 4 next week. That's a very good idea. Let's do some Q and also some A. I like both of those things. Uh, I want to hear your giant questions. If you have a question about stuff you've heard on the show or somewhere else, something you found in your Bible or just some general feedback you'd like to tell us and the world at large, here's how you do it. Head to the website, giantanswers.com. Send me an email at giantanswers.outlook.com. I personally receive all your mail and I will try to get to all of it. I love hearing from you, especially if I can help you with answers to your giant questions. So uh, you got any weird stuff? Let's do some weird stuff. Uh, I also like weird stuff. Um, Isn't it all kind of weird stuff? I, I don't know. Um, I can't remember the last time we got a question that I didn't think was weird, to, to be honest. Um, it's just a weird subject matter. People like weird stuff, and uh, I guess that's why they listen to us. Weird subjects matter. Yeah, well, um, I, I, that's the only reason I have any friends, I think. People like weird stuff. <laughs> All right, well, let's try and make some new friends in. Uh, I think I've got something for you. Try this one on for size. Stephen asked, can you address the atonement possibility for A, the 200 angels in Tartarus, and B, the spirits of the angel-Adam hybrid offspring. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen. Well, would you look at that? We were just talking about atonement too. Well, that's a good question, or two questions, I, I guess, from Stephen. So thanks for that. Let's have a look and see what we can find. Uh, all right. So firstly, for those who are unfamiliar with this concept, this is coming from some text in the New Testament. It's First Peter chapter 3 and verses 18 through 20. Let's just have a read of that before we start. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. So here we have these imprisoned spirits, and to get a bit more specific, we've got another passage by the same author. This is 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness, be kept until the judgment. Okay, so there we have two references to these imprisoned spirits. Here in the ESV, you have one occasion where they are called spirits and another where they are called angels. This gets referenced as well in the book of Jude, which pretty much restates the same material from Peter. This is generally understood to refer to the events of Genesis chapter 6 and the rebellion of the sons of God who took human wives and had offspring who were the Nephilim. Because of the ambiguity of the Greek language, we don't have the kind of technical terminology to be able to differentiate between different classes of divine beings like you do in Hebrew. Anyone who tries to impress you with notions of the superiority of Greek language because of some kind of so-called precision 
obviously hasn't thought about issues like this. Obviously. I mean, really, do your homework, people. This is, this is pretty basic. So these are not ordinary angels. They're a higher class of divine being with some degree of executive level agency rather than the simple function of being divine messengers, as is the case with regular angels. The next issue is how do we know about their imprisonment? There's nothing about that in the Old Testament. The New Testament authors are getting that information from the book of First Enoch. The First Enoch chapter 10 in verses 4 to 6. And again, the Lord spoke to Raphael, bind Azazel hand and foot and put him in the darkness, make an opening in the desert, which is Dudael, and put him there and lay upon him rough and pointed rocks and cover him with darkness that he may remain there forever and cover his face that he may not see the light. And on the great day of judgment, he will be cast into the fire. Okay, so in that passage from First Enoch, we have the idea of these divine rebels being restrained and cast down into some horrible place. It's also First Enoch that gives us the number of 200 individuals who participated in this. Peter is obviously familiar with Greek mythology because he's used a Greek equivalent for the location of these divine rebels in this deepest and darkest of places. He calls it Tartarus. That place was said by the Greek poets to be as far below the earth as the earth is below heaven. It was considered to be the worst possible place you could go in the underworld. Tartarus is really not the same thing as hell, so the translators have led us down there. Most translations are using something like hell, and that's just unfortunate because it loses all the nuance of the original. But just when we thought we could be all smug about Koine Greek not being all that, now we realise that English isn't much better. Yeah, cut my people. I mean, this is just embarrassing. Oh, hang on. You're saying that our translation is even worse than the Greek. Well, you know, that kind of thing could happen to anyone, right? Uh, yeah, so so these 200 watchers, the sons of God, according to Genesis 6, are presently restrained, and they were visited in their imprisonment by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ in the time between his death and resurrection. They had another visitor prior to that, according to First Enoch, that was Enoch himself. Enoch was sent to these rebellious watchers by God to deliver a message. I'm going to read a passage from First Enoch now which addresses some of what was going on while Enoch could not be found, according to Genesis 5, and concerning what happened in Genesis 6, 1-4. This is chapters 12-14 to 14 from the Shod translation, which was written back in 1882. Uh, prepare for ye oldie language. Uh, starting, where are we? First Enoch chapter 12, um, verse 1, through to chapter 14, verse 7. And previous to all these things, Enoch was hidden, and not one of the children of men knew where he was hidden, and where he was, and what had become of him. And all his deeds were with the holy ones, and with the watchers in his days. And I, Enoch, was praising the great Lord and the king of the world. And behold, the watchers called to me, Enoch the scribe, and said to me, Enoch, thou scribe of justice, go, announce to the watchers of heaven who have left the high heaven and the holy eternal place, and have contaminated themselves with women, and have done as the children of men do, and have taken to themselves wives, and are contaminated in great contamination upon the earth. But upon earth they shall have no peace nor forgiveness of sin, for they will not enjoy their children. They will see the murder of their beloved ones, 
and they will lament over the destruction of their children and will petition to eternity, but mercy and peace will not be unto them. And Enoch, departing, said to Azazel, Thou wilt have no peace. A great condemnation has come upon thee, and he, that is uh, Raphael from uh, chapter 10, verse 4, read that earlier, will bind thee, and alleviation and intercession and mercy will not be unto thee, because thou hast taught oppression, and because of all the deeds of abuse, oppression, and sin which thou hast showed to the children of men. And then going, I spoke to them altogether, and they were all afraid. Fear and trembling seized them. And they asked me to write a memorial petition for them, that they thereby might attain forgiveness and carry their memorial petition before God into heaven. For they could not from now on speak with him, nor could they raise their eyes toward heaven from shame on account of their sins for which they were being punished. Then I wrote this memorial petition and prayed with reference to their souls and for each of their deeds and for that which they had asked of me, that they thereby might obtain forgiveness and patience. And going, I sat down near the waters of Dan, in Dan, which is to the right, i.e. south, of the evening side, i.e. the west, of Hermon, and read their memorial petition till I fell asleep. And behold, a dream came to me, and visions fell upon me, and I saw the vision of chastisement, to show to the sons of heaven, and to upbraid them. And having become awake, I went to them, and they were all sitting assembled, lamenting at Uber's Jael, which is between the Lebanon and Seniza, with their faces covered. And I related before them all the visions that I had seen in my sleep, and commenced to speak those words of justice, and to upbraid the watchmen of heaven. This writing is the word of justice and the admonition of the watchers who are from eternity, as the Holy and Great One commanded it in this vision. I saw in my sleep what I will now relate with a tongue of flesh and with my breath, which the Great One has given to the mouth of men that they might converse with it and understand in their hearts. And he has created and given to men the power to understand the word of knowledge. Thus also he has created me and given to me the power to upbraid the watchers, the sons of heaven. I have written your petition, and in my vision it appeared to me thus that your petition will not be granted in all the days of the world, and that judgment has been passed over you, and nothing will be granted unto you. And from now on you will not ascend into heaven to all eternity, and upon earth it has been decreed. They shall bind you for all the days of the world. But before this ye will have seen the destruction of your beloved children, and ye will not be able to possess them but they shall fall before you by the sword. Your petition for them will not be granted unto you, nor the one for yourselves. And while ye are weeping and praying, ye cannot speak a single word from the writing which I have written. That's the end of the quote. Now, if you've been following my material for a while, you know I don't consider the Enochian material inspired, but that doesn't mean it isn't authoritative. Certainly the New Testament authors considered it authoritative, even though we have no evidence that they treated it as inspired. So following that model, I don't mind using First Enoch as long as I'm not holding it up as God's word. The New Testament usage and adoption of those ideas should put our minds to rest on that. So anyway, we can see from First Enoch that the watchers were not considered to be eligible for any kind of forgiveness or the restoration of their former position or relationship with God. And the way that the Apostle Peter frames Jesus as a new and better Enoch in his letters 
really cements that position. Peter saw Jesus as a new Enoch. You mean like the way Paul had Jesus as the new Adam? Like Jesus is the one who does the job perfectly according to the type provided by the original? Yeah, yeah. It should be quite evident that when Jesus descended into the underworld following his death, proclamation that he made to them prior to his resurrection was not the announcement of any possibility of atonement or forgiveness or restoration, but instead it was a reiteration or a fresh statement of their condemnation. And that is in alignment with the Old Testament theology on this, as we see in Psalm 82. This is all stuff that I've talked about in some detail in my book, Answers to the Giant Questions, but we can tie that into what we were talking about earlier on this episode of the podcast with regard to the relationship between atonement and blood. There is no other creature made by God that is named in such a way as to reflect the holiness imputed by God. There is no other creature made by God who has the express function and purpose of the representation of God in a physically embodied state. So you should be able to see how the blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to make atonement for human transgression, but does not address the issue of divine transgression. We have absolutely nothing in Scripture that would indicate the possibility that God has imputed his holiness on divine beings in the same way that he has with humankind, either explicitly or implicitly. And we have to remember that the term holiness has more to do with being set apart for divine purpose than it does with any kind of moral conduct. Holiness and morality are not equivalent terms. You can throw divinity into that mix as well. It's not the same as morality. Being divine isn't the same as being good. And I say that because some people really have trouble with this idea that divine beings could actually be deserving of punishment. Yeah, I can see how people could get mixed up with those terms. Yeah, at the end of the day, whether you're holy or not, whether you're divine or not, if you break the rules, you face the consequences. And you might say, what rules? What, what rules are you talking about? There aren't any rules in the Bible for what the angels can or can't do. Yeah, what rules are you talking about? I don't think there are any rules in the Bible for what angels can or can't do. But angels are divine functionaries and they've got stuff to do. To do anything else is to transgress the creation order set in place by the Most High. So if your job is to stand there and say, holy, 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 then you better stand there and say, holy, holy, holy. And if your job is to deliver messages, then you better deliver them. If your job is to determine the destinies of mankind in cooperation with God and help to bring God's purposes to pass, then you better not be down there sowing your wild oats with the women folk. So they get what they deserve. So when we get to talking about the giants and the spirits of those giants who died, can we accept the plea that they are innocent by virtue of having been born this way? Again, violation of creation order. God makes everything distinct, and we do not have the authority to blur those lines. We make a lot of noise about the fallen sons of God and their role in creating the giants. But we have alarmingly little to say about the role of humankind in that process. Like we always say, it takes two to tango, and we were the ones set apart to represent God in human flesh. We don't bear all of the guilt in the origin of the Nephilim, but we were complicit. So the Nephilim represent a violation of creation order from both human and divine perspectives. This is why the author of First Enoch calls them bastards and reprobates. If their origin is a violation of creation order and the epitome of chaos, then surely their life is too. And you can see that reflected in the violence described in Genesis 6 and the greed and the abuse of power that the author of First Enoch picks up on as well. When we look at what becomes of the Nephilim, we see also that even in death, they transgress divine order. And that holds true for both the pre-flood and the post-flood giants. 
they continue, even in the afterlife, to attempt to hold dominion over mankind. At least the fallen watchers made petition to God and had the appearance of being repentant, but the demons that came forth from the bodies of the dead giants show no signs of any inclination toward repentance, so it should be no surprise that any talk of salvation for these entities is not on the table. Once again, the atonement of Christ was the blood of the word of God given for the people who were made to be the life of the word of God, literally the body of God in the world, restoring us to our original purpose and function because we are still able to be restored. If there's anything I want people to get from this episode, it's that understanding. I've never heard it put that way before, but you know what? I love it. Let's not forget as well that Jesus is our great high priest on the basis that he alone among the Elohim shares our humanity. Hebrews 2 verses 14 to 17. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So there's just no way that any kind of creature outside of humanity can experience the atonement of Christ's death on the cross. It just doesn't do for them what it does for us. So there you go, Stephen. Hopefully that settles things for you on that issue. Thanks for that question, mate. And listeners, don't forget you too can send in your own giant questions to be answered here on the podcast. Just send me your questions through the website, giantanswers.com, or join the discussion group on Facebook, or send an email to giantanswers at outlook.com, and you'll definitely get a response whichever way you choose to make contact. Yeah, keep listening because we continue to bring you the Word of God in its ancient context and the answers to your lovely, powerful, giant questions. That's all for now. We'll catch you next time. Answers to Giant Questions podcast. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode, but if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and the answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions, by DJ Stephen on Amazon. Paperback, Check out the other podcasts at ravencreeksc.com, giantanswers.com, Read the blog and have some socials, don't forget to subscribe to the show. Send us all your questions and 
stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. G'day, folks, and welcome back to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. And you know what? Doesn't even pay you. Doesn't even pay you. It doesn't pay you. So stop asking. We will not pay you. I have none. <laughs> so, yeah, had this appearance on the Dig Bible podcast, uh, which is done by. Uh, a group of guys in, I believe, Tennessee. Okay. Uh, so 12-hour time difference, and that meant that uh, their Friday night was my Saturday morning, and we did it about 9 o'clock. Okay. So uh, late night for those guys because we went for, I don't know, at least an hour and a half, I think. Mm. And, uh, yeah, for me, it was just a novel way to start the day. <laughs> So, what did they have? Like, certain were, were they asking you questions? It was more of a topical discussion, or uh, they were yeah, quite interested in my book. Uh, I did send one of the Good. guys a copy, which he he says he absolutely devoured and really loved it. Awesome. So that was good to hear. Uh, so we talked a bit about the book and just a few aspects of it here and there. Didn't really spend a great deal of time on that because we also talked about the podcast and just got into some biblical matters, um, talked a bit about stuff that we're doing in this current season of the show regarding Genesis 4, the apocalyptic view of that according to First Enoch, how that was interpreted and that sort of thing. So, Okay. Not in any great depth, but it was just nice to have that conversation mm. with a bunch of interested guys and, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to that episode coming out. All right. Enough of that. Let's do... Some of this. Let's do some of this. I like this. Let's do this. Yeah, this is good. All right. And you're back just in time for your line. Oh, yeah, I was going to say carry on speaking without me. Um, okay, my timing is good. I've never heard it put that way. Is that the one? Yeah, yeah. And you haven't because you weren't there. <laughs> this is a, a very accurate statement I'm about to make. Well, you've got to break omelettes to – no, you don't. you don't break omelettes. You've got to break some omelettes to make some eggs. <clears throat> like, yeah, the opposite of that. That's why I don't make omelettes. The Joker, eh? Jack Nicholson quoted that. Is that, that what one. it? Oh, did he? Yeah. Oh. Michael Keaton, Batman. Oh, right. Tarzan. 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 I always thought no. Phantom and Tarzan should do like a crossover episode. Um, they probably have in the comics. Uh, Tarzan has crossed over with Superman, with uh, Predator, um, yeah, a few uh, a few different characters over the years. Um, and Phantom, I guess, could be made a case that Phantom is actually first superhero. Yeah, Phantom's just like a rich guy, fuck that man. Yeah, but he does have like a tragic origin. He does have like um, dual identity, you know, secret identity. That he has a costume. Yeah, yeah, you know. As a symbol, so there's some of the tropes. Lots of eggnog, because tis the season. Tis the season. This, uh, this sounds like an annual uh, topic of discussion. Um, but the quantities that they stock are dismal. Oh. I find everywhere I go, I find only two in the fridge. Oh, okay. That's not enough for me. But um, 
I just hold myself back and just have one. <laughs> Let the other dog uh, lover have the other one. Yes, um, I should mention to uh, my uh, American friend Nathan Underwood told me with some delight oh weeks ago now that he was uh, he'd found some Tim Tams uh, in in the US at a uh, specialty. Yeah, one of those specialty shops does the international food, I guess. Um, Interesting. That's how I interpreted it. And uh, so, yeah, he was uh, dead keen to cool. get into these Tim Tams and do a Tim Tam slam. And I said to him, well, if you think regular Tim Tams are good, you've got to try the double coat ones. Absolutely. I ain't going to do that. Here's one you prepared earlier. Excellent. Weed noggy goodness. Uh, it's weird that they're bringing it out in early November. Oh, it's not weird. That's like, um, you know, for uh, all the um, Americans and that, you know, Thanksgiving and all of that. Basically, Halloween sort of kicks off that festive season mm. for, you know, the rest of the year. So it's eggnog season, really, from, from Halloween onwards. I always thought eggnog was a, uh Australian thing. No, no. Um, I believe it actually came from, well... Holland. I, I, I thought it was, you know... British thing or something. I'm not sure. I have to actually look it up. Well, that can be uh, an off-topic giant question. They uh, they drink it warm. Oh yeah, because it's like got spices and such, isn't it? Isn't it? Or like cinnamon or yes. Okay, I've been putting um, cinnamon in my coffee lately. Oh yeah, it's nice. It is. Yeah. I like that. Mm. Oh, there you go. Yeah, British. No, it is. Is it okay? Yes. Well, I suppose it's always cold over there, so they're after a uh, anise, a warm drink. And I suppose it could be alcoholic or not. Hmm. There you go. In the 13th century, monks were known to drink this with uh, eggs and figs. Oh, okay. Monks, eh? Yeah, and it was alcoholic. It was like an ale. Oh, okay. Milk beer or something. Oh, that's very weird. <laughs> Glad that it's not like that now. I, th- I think it's better now. Yes. Yes. Well, Enjoy your uh, nog hunting. I mean, you've got a beard. That's pretty masculine. Yes, it's a fine beard. Needs a bit of a trim, actually. I bought a trim out. Yeah, it seems a bit more... Um, Voluminous. Yeah, thank you. Then last week, I was trying to think of the word. Rather, uh, well, I, I was going to say verdant, but that sort of implies green. It does. A green beard. <laughs> well, you could die for St. Patrick's Day. <laughs>